Hello, coming to you from New York City, this is Disaster Politics, the podcast that explores the intersection of policy and legislation with disaster preparedness, response, and recovery. I'm your host, Jeff Slegemelch. Thanks, everyone, for joining Episode 4 of Disaster Politics Podcast, where today's theme is that all resilience is local. Daniel Holmesy takes us to the streets of San Francisco and through a couple of block parties that they're doing to build resilience and connect people with the businesses in their neighborhood, with the emergency management systems. And then Jason Friesen walks us through some of the work that they're doing internationally as well as domestically to help build more resilient and more reliable emergency medical services systems. But enough talk from me for now. Let's hear what they have to say, and we'll travel the world without ever having to leave the neighborhood. All right, so joining me now is Daniel Holmesy. Daniel is the director of the city and county of San Francisco's Neighborhood Empowerment Network. Did I say that right? Correct, sir. All right. He's also on the uh, National Children's Resilience Leadership Board, which is part of the Resilient Children and Resilient Communities Initiative, a three-year initiative with the National Center for Disaster Preparedness at Columbia University's Earth Institute in partnership with Save the Children and funded by a grant from the health and pharmaceutical company GSK. Daniel, thanks for joining us here today. A pleasure. All right. Uh, So talk to us a little bit about what you're doing in San Francisco and why neighborhoods and what the Neighborhood Empowerment Network is. Well, the Neighborhood Empowerment Network is a cohort of agencies and organizations and and individuals. Um, We really try to bring together the, the, the government side of the equation, so all the agencies and and initiatives within government. We also call upon our partners in the private sector, the nonprofit sector, the philanthropic sector, the academic sector, but last but not least, the neighborhood sector. And the neighborhood sector is largely comprised of individuals and place-based networks. Many of them uh, volunteer um, and really come together and align around this mission because the truth is, is that when you look at the kind of community that's built around the recovery phase after disaster, if you look who's at the table, you realize that all those people will eventually have to come together to address this challenge or this opportunity. So why not bring them together beforehand and make the smart investments that we can make today relatively easily and inexpensively so that after a severe time of stress, and that could be regionally like a large earthquake, but it can be hyper-local like the loss of a lot of affordable housing or the loss of a, a, an important asset in the community, like a, a, a neighborhood center. Um, and say, let's do, let's do the work now. Let's, let's take on this challenge in a climate that's positive and healthy and happy and not have the duress of trying to do it as quickly as possible with limited resources and clamor for attention while a lot of other things are going on. And, and let's do great things. And, what exciting is people are responding to that. Yeah, that's an important point that you bring up. And I know one of the things that, that you know, we've been talking about kind of 
on the mic and off the mic uh, previously has been this whole notion of, uh, you know, so much of our national disaster preparedness is top down or it's, you know, kind of manufactured within the Beltway. And you'll sort of do these, you know, visits out to communities and things like that to get information in. Uh, but at the neighborhood level, at that kind of hyper local level, there's a dynamic that is very rarely accounted for. I think back to one of the things you mentioned to me, too, on how the first responders aren't wearing uniforms. They're neighbors helping neighbors. A lot of times are the first line after an earthquake before help is able to arrive. But uh, I wonder if you could talk a little bit more, too, about uh, just sort of expand on this idea of, you know, we, we have these national systems. They do their thing. They set up these yeah, national supply chains, yeah. things like that. We have FEMA. We have state emergency management mm -hmm. agencies. Mm -hmm. What's missing from that? Why do neighborhoods, why do some of these local concerns, um, why do things kind of fall through the cracks? What are your thoughts on that? Well, I don't want to say what's missing. I sure. say, what's the opportunity? All right. right. All right. I mean, you know, we can sit all day long and do these like ad hoc gap analysis and point the fingers and this, this, and this. And let's just be really honest that the truth is, is that onboarding all the stakeholders that we need at the table pre-event is not always easy. Mm -hmm. And so getting out of this ad hoc planning model where we put everyone in a room and we write these plans and we say we had the right people in the room. Um, let's just face it, a lot of the people charged with developing these systems and maintaining these systems are not adequately staffed and funded to build meaningful, deep working relationships with all the constituents they need to. So let's be very clear point, yeah. that we want to honor the fact that these institutions and organizations have this gap they're dealing with, which is the right way to do their job and the reality of doing their job. Sure. What we need to do is revision emergency management in the construct of looking at through the lens of the larger mission of government, which is community development, mm -hmm. and really looking at the opportunity to build into these communities the capacity to contribute to the mission of emergency management during times of stress, but make it everyone's responsibility. I mean, if you look at how government spends money, I mean, every day, the Department of Health, the Department of Children, Youth, and Families, all these departments are pouring millions of dollars into these neighborhoods and supporting organizations that provide mission-critical responsibilities every day to these families. They are just as responsible and just as capable of advancing emergency management. Really, a truly holistic, smart entity isn't trying to make interventions with, you know, a population they're trying to support solely when things are going well, right? In fact, if you really look at smart investment, what we're looking at is trying to bring people together to prepare them so that during times of stress, they don't fail, mm -hmm. right? Hence why, you know, we have healthy eating programs and hence why we have, you know, financial capacity building programs and, and why we have WIC and all these other programs. It's like, so people are healthy and they're happy and they're connected. And should times of stress come along, either at the individual level or at the community level, block level, whatever it is, that they successfully negotiate it. The Department of Emergency Management, their role largely is to just sort of like create that bridge of, of interoperability amongst those agencies so that they can continue to meet that mission. We need to broaden the ownership of times of stress outside the Department of Emergency Management because in the end, consistently when we look back, they ultimately, I think, receive undue criticism and undue yeah. accountability for things that didn't go well. But if you look back, they weren't at the table up until that moment and right. to blame them for activities and decisions that were made to not do and not do something before that moment isn't fair because 
they're not at the table to influence that. And what we need to do is revision this siloed approach towards times of, of stress and help people realize that everybody is responsible to make contributions along the way before, during, and after. Yeah, it's an important point how, uh, you know, you have these groups that sort of deal with these different things on a day-to-day -day basis, whether it's caring for children on a day-to-day -day basis in schools or childcare facilities or managing supply chains or managing staff. And then, and then in a disaster situation to expect another agency is going to somehow recreate that or reproduce that is something that I think most emergency managers would tell you is wrong, but a lot of lay people, uh, kind of over rely on or take for granted. Uh, on our last podcast, we had an emergency manager, Mark Burtis. He would say, he said, um, uh, and I'm paraphrasing a little bit, uh, my boss doesn't know what I do, but she knows when I do it wrong. It's, uh, yeah, it's one of those conundrums where it's, it's very visible when it's done wrong. But uh, I'm, I'm curious too about, uh, your thoughts on, on, um, you know, you mentioned elected officials and you mentioned kind of you have legislators, you have the executive branch, things like that. And that at these neighborhoods, that seems like the ultimate constituency, right? That all politics are local. And so what is kind of that role as well, too, for sort of a grassroots to uh, kind of pressure up on uh, making sure that their needs are met and, and that their roles are defined? Well, of course, I mean, if you think about the paradigm of how our republic works, you know, it's it's one person comes in the construct of your community's resilience and presents themselves as your champion and your vessel for your goals and aspirations for your neighborhood. One person. Your elected official, right? Your, your elected mayor, official. Your governor, your president. I, I offer that. I, if I assume this responsibility, given the trappings of this institution, I will have the ability to influence all this and I will make this, the day brighter, the food tastes better, and <laughs> yes. your commute safer and faster. And I have that power. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's why, for example, you, you don't see the, the head of the department of management out campaigning, you know, mm -hmm. the, and, and there's efficiencies for everyone in that role. Right. So the bottom line is, is that, you know, what I think is important is if you look at the paradigm of soliciting votes is often this is one of the few times politicians often come out and actually sit down and listen to the constituents and create that two ears, one mouth paradigm mm -hmm. and listen to what their priorities are. Now, if you unpack Hurricane Katrina and look at what happened in the Ninth Ward and with the construct of the system that we're creating where neighborhoods are writing their own resilient action plan that cover mitigation, preparedness, response, restoration, recovery, where they self-identify who their vulnerable populations are, what they think the, that the mitigation investments that should be needed to protect their health and well-being at the sort of civic neighborhood institutional level is imagine in 2002, if, you know, the mayor had gone out and the neighborhood had said, you know, Mr. Mayor, we want to let you know that we're concerned about the likelihood of a Category 3 storm. Mm -hmm. We're concerned that right now the levy system has been identified as being underperforming in that construct. We're also concerned that it appears that the strategy for moving our vulnerable residents out of harm's way, should the levy fail, is for them to be told that they have to self-evacuate out of the city in order to, you know, protect their health and well-being. And we would offer that in neighborhoods like ours that we know are likely to be impacted negatively, especially if the levees fail, that we would like you to consider creating a strategy that is a funded evacuation plan to make sure that those that are unable to participate in the self-funding model have an alternative. And that way, we can work together to rebuild our neighborhood, but do so under the lens that 
everything was done to make sure that our seniors would be okay. So it sounds like a lot of this work being done on resilience is, is really to like raise that voice, right? Is to give neighborhoods sort of the, the resources to make that argument, to be able to articulate um, those needs like that. Um, is that. Is that fair to say? Or do you find that, that people can kind of come out of the gate describing what kinds of evacuation plans they need? How do you get them to a point where they can have that conversation yeah, with their I mean, elected officials? It's not just fair, it's accurate. I mean, <laughs> you know, Fr Craig Fugate, you know, uh, the, the previous director of the, the oh, FEMA, FEMA yeah. you know, his famous line was that 50 years ago when they said a tornado was coming, people used to fill the bathtub, right, and yeah. get ready for the water and power to turn off. Nowadays, he says, people wait for me to show up with water at yeah. their house afterwards. And, and I would offer that in many respects, you know, one of the things that we need to do in this country is we've dangerously invested in the narrative that my health and well-being during times of stress is someone else's responsibility. Mm -hmm. And if you ask anybody who went through Hurricane Katrina, anybody who went through Hurricane Sandy, the cruel reality and the wake-up call almost immediately after the event started is that was a very dangerous assumption or approach mm -hmm. towards my family's well-being. And what we're saying is, if you unpack it, though, we haven't really been aggressive about going out and reminding them that opportunity to, to steward themselves. We've also created systems that are really very insulated and people have no point or opportunity to understand everything in the construct of what are the risks my community is facing? What are my options for investing? And then how can I contribute to implement those options, right? And neighborhoods actually have a tremendous capacity to make a majority of those investments, much of which is not hard assets. Like kits and things like that are great, but Professor Daniel Aldrich, you know, Northeastern has written, you know, seminal documents that point out that social capital and cohesion and connection is really the ultimate resource during times of stress. In fact, his recent work about Fukushima has proven that no matter how high the tsunami was that hit a town, the X factor wasn't the size of the seawall. The X factor was the cohesion between the residents and themselves. I mean, just recently, Stanford University pointed out that 97% of all of the human services service delivery after COVID Japan was provided by resident to resident, yeah. right? So if you're operating under that construct and realizing that if you want to be have a successful emergency management strategy, then in many scenarios, the response and recovery is largely done by peer to peer, neighbor to neighbor. Yeah. If these people are going to be thrust into this role, let's not have them find that out when all heck is breaking loose. Mm -hmm. Let them find that out now. And we can do it in smart and easy ways. So why, right now in San Francisco, we have this exciting program working with the Department of Emergency Management, the Police Department, the Fire Department, and a myriad of other agencies, including the Metropolitan Transportation Authority. We have our friends at the PUC, the mm -hmm. mayor's office, everyone. And it's really simple. It's called NeighborFest, how to throw the world's greatest block party. Nice. Very simple. Why? Well, first of all, neighbors love to throw block parties, right? Yep. Everyone loves to pull out the barbecue on a sunny day, have the kids be able to take back the street, ride their bikes around. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a behavior they already pre-identify something they want to do. All we do is build on that with the toolkit that shows them how to organize their team pre-event using the framework that we call the incident command system, as you asked about yes, earlier, right? Yes. And they learn about operations and logistics and team lead and communications, right? We then give them the documents and tools to actually organize themselves using the framework so that they can make sure that they hit all the right spots on their event. We then allow them to come together and, and with, by removing any of the barriers that we might perceive, like, you know, fees and permits. 
The day of they activate, we get the opportunity to show up. And what we do is we bring in a table um, and partner with our friends at Department of Energy Management, the SF72 narrative. And they run a tabletop exercise called Map Your Resilient Floor, where we say, here's a map of your block. Where would you find food, water, and these resources during times of stress? And then we give them a bin of disaster supplies that will help them achieve that mission. Gloves, hats, and helmets that they would need to like help each other. And then we also provide them an immense amount of information about all the other programs they can do beyond NeighborFest to continue to work together. Adopt a block, adopt a drain, graffiti watch, planting trees. There's millions of other programs that government offers that aren't directly tied to emergency management, but allow them to come together and tackle unified goals that they have. Like we want more trees in our neighborhood. Well, let's learn how to organize that. Equally at that event, you also have the police department there with their talking cop car. You have the fire department there with their sure. grig. Yeah. And they're actually doing education around fire safety. Now, what's important about this is then you pull back and you look at what's really going on. So now you have pre-event the interface of the emergency management community with the leaders on that block. The leaders are understanding now the systems that the first responders use so that they can work together during times of stress. And on top of that, you're generating two important capacities. One is how to do mass feeding. And after a disaster, mass feeding is one of the most important roles that people can do to work sure. together to meet the needs. And lastly, and perhaps even more importantly in San Francisco, that is dealing with the tectonic change in population um, around gentrification, is we're bringing people together, many who've never met before that live on the same block, and actually building social cohesion. You know, along those lines, I actually used uh, Daniel Aldrich's research to justify building a pig pit in my backyard for a neighborhood mm -hmm. pig roast. And I, I've convinced, uh, or tried to, con I've convinced myself at least, I've tried to convince others on the importance of that for building uh, social cohesion. And uh, they think I'm joking, and I'm only half joking. But I think it is an important point, right, is that, is that we, we tend to focus so much on these hard assets, like you said, like kits. And to me, like a kit or a preparedness kit is an insurance policy. It's sort of and it's sort of something you pay into now to reduce your overall loss, to put you in a better position. But relationships are resilience, and resilience is really an investment. And that investment, as you mentioned, pays off in so many other ways because there are so many crossovers. It's not a clear divide between day-to-day -day and emergency management. So when we're looking at sort of the space in which to do this, right, we have the existing emergency management structures, as you mentioned, which sort of provide official sort of conduits for emergency management and getting supplies through. But then, you know, what creates the space for doing this at the neighborhood level? And both in terms of like policy and things that, you know, folks can think about, but also in terms of funding. How are these things coming forward? Is it everybody buying in? Is there seed funding? Are there existing grants that could be leveraged? How are you guys getting this done in uh, San Francisco? Well, I think when you look at the the, the community building that went around this initiative, you know, first and foremost, we had to create a value proposition, which is that we wanted to demonstrate that neighborhoods would participate in a program like this and would do the big lift and securing the permits and, and doing the outreach and getting people. And when, when you look at all the different departments in government and all the different programs that actually are trying to get out there and engage residents, the truth is, is that, you know, this is a big challenge for them is being able to say, you know, how can I find these people? Like we, we go out and we, we try and host meetings and we try and put as much sizzle as we can, but it's not enough to get people to like actually change their behavior and participate. And, you know, admittedly, 
one of the things that we're really, you know, working hard to really figure out is how to engage monolingual immigrants into a lot of our traditional planning processes, right? Because they usually come from places where they're not traditionally invited or, or, or assume they should be able to participate, right? And so what we find is you have this intersection of there are some people that at the neighborhood level that crave community and they want to know their neighbors because they know as a human that 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 social network around you, the better connected it is um, and the, the richer it is in trust and reciprocity is intrinsically connected to your health and safety. Then you flip on the other side and you see all these programs and initiatives where there's millions of dollars being poured into. But the thing they need most is people to be aware of them mm-hmm. and participate in them. Right. So that's their pain. Right. So what if we aligned the need for community with the need to engage community and did it in a way where there's tremendous efficiencies generated? And that is, is that for the, the program that's trying to get out there and raise awareness of, say, for example, planting trees, the cost of setting up hyper-local resource fairs and getting people to those fairs is unachievable based on their budget. But meeting people where they are and having them take that on is actually very achievable. Now, there are certain barriers that the people that will take the lead as the convener may experience as individual residents, such as perhaps having to pay permits to the city to close the street, getting barricades set up so that they can safely manage traffic. And so what we do with the NeighborFest program is we actually raise the money to waive those fees, right? We actually have a program in the city where we will give you the barricades for free, Mm. right? We actually offer you the programming that helps get people out. So you can tell people there's going to be a fire truck. The talking cop car is going to be there. Get your family out, right? And then we actually give you, you know, a deeper level of technical understanding of how to organize your neighbors to be able to work together on the food and the other activities. So pretty soon we're knocking down these barriers. Some of them are financial. Some of them are skills, right? But what we're realizing is, is that by coming together around the mission of building stronger communities and moving ownership out, not in, right? That's where we see the transformative activity. That's where we see residents being to learn how to work together with their local police station, working with their local FICR station to achieve a goal that has nothing to do with like a crisis, which is important. Yeah, there's a a Don Rumsfeld quote I always think of, and it wasn't necessarily given in the best of context, but it was uh, that you don't go to war with the army you want, you go to war with the army you have. And I think similarly, when a disaster strikes, you you go in it with the relationships that you've built over the years preceding it, and there's no shortcut, and there's no way to kind of make up for that. And that's, to me, where resilience and the value proposition, and it's tough to put a dollar amount on it, but it it, it is time and time again the difference, and, and the research uh, shows that that's the the difference that that uh, as you mentioned in Fukushima, flood walls are one thing, but community resilience, the social cohesion, um, is is ultimately the secret sauce. And so as we talk about neighborhoods too, I just want to hit on one more thing, and I, I know we've been talking a lot about sort of individuals and their relationship with government institutions, um, but also in between all of that, right? There are a lot of businesses that exist within these communities, some small businesses, some large business hubs that also serve as as employers, as resources, as things like that. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit to, about uh, what's their involvement in this and what they kind of bring to the table. Absolutely. Absolutely. So let's remember that resilience isn't just about response. Our, our overarching assumption is that no one just wants to survive. They want to recover and even to a better condition, right? And so when we look at our neighborhoods, it isn't just about necessarily making sure that people don't suffer needlessly and die during the disaster. That's, of course, an essential construct of this work. 
It's also about making sure that we keep people in the community and we return to the status that we had before, maybe better, where we were this incredible organism that had come together over decades, over time, people buying and investing in slowly. That's what is essential in our, our work is to help people understand that these organizational actors that we have at the neighborhood level. So you think about it. It, it is the pharmacist. It is the, the Boys and Girls Club. It is the library. It is the Rec and Park Center. It is the Safeway, these assets, right? Is if you need them every day to make sure that people want to move into your neighborhood, you're certainly going to need them afterwards to make sure they stay in the neighborhood. I mean, let's face it. Would you live in a neighborhood that didn't have a supermarket? Possibly not. It wouldn't be an ideal situation, right? So what we do is when we go into neighborhoods, we try and set these things called hubs. And the hub is not one institution because we realize that during times of stress, if you put all your eggs in one basket, it you could end up failing. And so we, what we create is a hub is a network of agencies and organizations that serve the community, that are basically reside in close proximity to each other, that have the ability during times of stress to first and foremost meet their internal needs and then pivot and then be able to work together to meet the needs of the larger community, right? And there's two reasons why this is powerful. One is, of course, these agencies and organizations need to continue to thrive. I mean, let's face it, they employ people, they serve people. Secondly, though, and more importantly, perhaps, is that network capacity to then be able to maybe modify their mission, care and shelter, feeding, those types of things, so that the larger community around them will ultimately stay and remain in that community uh, because they see their needs are being met. Now, they may not all be clients of all these individual agencies, but they create that critical mass. Why? Because, you know, the work of Harvard and Daniel Aldrich point out that if people who inherently during times of stress, I mean, as much as they love the city and they love their neighborhood, ultimately their obligation is to themselves and their loved ones for their health and well-being. If they feel like that is not a mission that they can achieve in that community, then they will most likely opt out of staying in that neighborhood. Why that's dangerous is, is that if you look at any of these economic factors that bring businesses into their community, they look very carefully at the demographic composition of these neighborhoods to see, are there enough customers in this neighborhood for us to thrive and make a profit? So if they move in the neighborhood, but then the composition of the neighborhood pivots away, no matter what the driver is, if it's a large disaster or an economic downturn, then you run the risk of those agencies no longer being able to justify to stay in that community. And then this domino effect kicks in. Mm -hmm. You lose your pharmacist, you lose your bank, you lose your supermarket, then 10, 20, 30, 40% of people move out because they're like, I want to live in a neighborhood with a pharmacist, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So this hub is a powerful platform because pre-event, Every day, it's working on its own internal kind of operation plans for its agencies and organizations, strengthening those, and then working with them to work with their residents and the people they serve on their preparedness and resilience, right? Example, in Resilient Bayview, we have amazing agencies and organizations at the table, right? So we have the Bayview Opera House, Jolie Gym, Providence Baptist Church, and the YMCA. 3,600 people walk in through the front door of the YMCA every day. Mm-hmm. Who is a better partner to them on their day-to-day resilience? And who's a better partner for them to introduce preparedness information? A, a, a city official or a bureaucrat they never met before or someone they trust and count on for their day-to-day you know, resilience, right? So we're realizing these are also powerful platforms to create culturally competent preparedness messaging to leverage their social capital and trust and reciprocity with these residents to get them to adopt better behaviors. And this is what's powerful is the the potential to use these relationships and not have to come up with these top-down campaigns, which are largely fear-based, 
which alienate people, which don't leverage social capital. But inversely, let's increase social capital and let's find out where those relationships are and let's leverage those relationships in an efficient, smart way, either be a block party or the delivery of a meal and advance the goals and mission of the emergency management community without them really having to do more than provide the content expertise to those networks. In the end, you'll touch thousands of people every day and never have to leave your office. You know, uh, just a, a great point to kind of um, close on as well, too, is just that how, how you know, pervasive resilience can be at the local level and just how limited and how resource intensive it can be just to, to even even imagine that it's even possible through a single federal agency or through a single federal funding stream or things like that. You know, and I think as we think about this too and sort of expand, resilience is a really sort of nice notion, a really elegant notion to put out there. And I think the marketing around it is, uh, you know, really inspiring. But what you're really doing in San Francisco is uh, is the hard work of actually, well, what does that mean on the local level? What does resilience actually look like? And what does a, resi- a resilient neighborhood look like? And it's got to go beyond our traditional grants and our traditional structures. It's got to include them but as you said, you know, we all have ownership over this. Um, how can people find out more about this? How can they follow along what's going on? And can they access these uh, some of these resources? Absolutely. So um, we encourage everyone to um, visit empowersf.org. One word, empowersf.org. Um, everything we're doing uh, is up on that website. We're very transparent. Uh, we want people to see that we have real communities doing real work. Uh, if you check out the Resilient Bayview website, for example, incredible inventory of the projects are taken on. And they're one of eight neighborhoods that we're working with right now. Um, follow us on Facebook um, and Empower Now, I believe, is our, our, our term that we're using. Um, and uh, Or the Neighborhood Empowerment Network, the Neighborhood Empowerment Network, and search us on Facebook and follow us. Um, and, and don't follow us. Uh, inspire us. Uh, challenge us. You know, I mean, we believe that there is amazing things happening all over the world. I've been blessed to go, as you know, from like Christchurch, New Zealand, to the hills above Boulder, California, to the, you know, the slums of Kingston, Jamaica. And that's where our hub program actually initiated was in the Duhane neighborhood in Kingston, Jamaica. And I I always want to honor those folks. And it was an honor to go there with G.L. Hodge, who's one of the leaders in our faith community, whose his, his background comes from Jamaica, and to go there with him and see him and then have him say, I want to do this in my neighborhood, and then bring it back to the Bayview and launch our first hub. And so I want to put out there that, you know, we really need to all understand that there are millions of people doing this, some on the payroll and some not. It doesn't matter. What matters is they're moving the needle. And if we can start to inventory all of these programs and initiatives and align them in a culturally competent way to neighborhoods that will relate to them. That's and that is what I my offer to everyone is, is join me in the street, bring out your favorite coleslaw, let's fire up the jumpy <laughs> house, right. and let's have a good time. That's right. If you don't know where to start, start with barbecue. It's uh, um, you know uh, a tenant that I've lived my life by for uh, quite some time now, and now I have the data to support it. Um, thanks again for joining us, and I'm sure that we'll have a lot more to talk about. Hopefully, we'll have you back. Yeah, I'd love to. And again, uh, just to put out there, if you want to learn more about NeighborFest, just go to NeighborFest.org neighborfest.org sounds like it's spelled and uh and you'll be able to find all the information about the program we're running there and we'd be honored to share it with any other municipalities that are interested in taking advantage of it great well thank you so much and uh keep doing what you're doing So joining the podcast now is Jason Friesen. Jason is the founder and executive director of Trek Medics International. 
He has a long history of working in humanitarian assistance and disaster response internationally in Central America, the Caribbean, uh, Europe, and elsewhere. He served as the country director for Project Hope in Haiti until mid-2012 and uh, is trained as a paramedic and has worked uh, both as a paramedic and paramedic instructor uh, all around the world. So Jason, thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. First of all, let us know kind of what Trackmatics is, kind of what your latest project is, um, and also just some of the work that you've been a part of and kind of what's led to that. Yeah, so, uh, so Trackmatics, we're a non-governmental organization, non-profit, and what our mission is is to basically we improve emergency medical services in communities with unreliable access to emergency care and transports through mobile phone technologies. Uh, the kind of commercial easy way that we like to put it is 911 where there is none. And what that consists of is working with existing pre-hospital providers in uh, low and middle income countries to improve and expand the services that they're providing. So, for example, we've got uh, two programs going on right now in the Dominican Republic and in Tanzania where responders are using our software Beacon uh, to coordinate their emergency response activities, providing 24-7 emergency care and transport to a total population of about 450,000 people. And so the way our software Beacon works is um, very simple because I guess to back up a little, most people may not, or many of your listeners may not know this, but uh, when you leave the OECD nations, the you know, 25 wealthiest countries, uh, most low, as they're called, low and middle income countries don't have a consistent or reliable way to call for help when it's needed. So we're very used to and, and I would argue even take for granted the this service we have here in the United States among many other countries which is 911. In developing countries this does not exist nowhere near the extent that we do um, and the reason for this is because if you want to deliver 24-7 on-demand door-to-door emergency medical services like we enjoy here in the United States you need at a minimum two things you need lots of money and you need really good roads without those two things you can't do it the way we do it in the United States despite those challenges in developing countries people are transported to the hospital every day and uh, what we do is we say look everybody's out there has got a cell phone there are people who are willing to help and there are vehicles that while may not be ideal for ambulance transport, they are appropriate and adequate. So what we do in the Dominican Republic and Tanzania is uh, we equip these response agencies with our communication software Beacon, which is a platform designed specifically for a dispatching platform designed specifically for communities that don't need or can't afford advanced 911 technologies. So essentially, it sounds like it's a it's kind of a lighter weight system, right? It's sort of a uh, almost like we see in a lot of developing countries where you're skipping a a technological generation, where you're going sort of skipping the clunkier servers and dispatch systems and moving to a lightweight text based kind of in the cloud system, and uh, and really leveraging volunteers in the community in the absence of a professional network. Is that is that a fair yes. characterization? That is that's spot on. If you think about what we use here in the United States, 
we started developing our developing our communications technologies in the 60s and we've been building them piecemeal largely hobbyists and tinkerers okay. you know uh, started building these things and as the technology advanced piecemeal so did the dispatching systems and we were building these all along with no I don't want to say no, but very little anticipation of how quickly and fully cell phones, mobile phones were going to take over society. And these countries, these low and middle income countries, they never had the penetration with the copper wire telephone lines. And so they never really started with any of this. And now since they're, you know, predominantly mobile phone based societies, they can really skip all of that stuff. Now, now I know with uh, 911 systems and uh, EMS agencies that even within the United States, they kind of bring their own political ecosystem with them, right? If it's community run, if it's volunteer based, if it's state run. Um, how does that play out internationally? Who are the different stakeholders in each country? Is it sort of a turnkey? I know the software itself is fairly turnkey, but what's the work that goes into the relationship building and building those volunteers and working with the hospitals? Yeah, fantastic question. I think that, you know, having worked in the United States as a paramedic for many years and also just being very familiar with different systems in the United States, across the United States, I think it was a good warm-up for working in developing countries. Okay. (laughs) Uh, Because you go, okay, so let's just talk about Guatemala. Guatemala has... uh, for a low-income country, they have a very respectable emergency response system. And it is comprised of two rival fire departments, primarily. Yeah. This started, this, this, there used to be one fire department, and then there was a little disagreement between leaders. Okay. And now they have two fire departments. Okay. But then there are other communities where, you know, Guatemala City, the capital, they've got a very uh, robust, well, I don't want to say robust, but they have a lot of private ambulance providers uh-huh. who are competing for like subscribers, especially the wealthy. And then they also have the Red Cross who does stuff and then they have civil protection. And so you get all these different providers. And if I were to come from a country like the UK or uh, Australia, where they have one ambulance agency for the right. whole country, sure, I might be a little, it might strike me as odd that you have all these competing agencies but in America, that's how we do it too. Right. And we're exporting our. And so going in there and seeing all this fragmentation, it's like, oh, I know how this works. Mm-hmm. It's whoever can grab whatever, you know, it's just a big land grab, so to speak. And mm-hmm. whoever can secure it, they'll claim it until they lose it. And so the United States, the only, there are a lot of differences, obviously, between the United States and developing countries, but. Going into countries that have very skeletal or anemic emergency services and proposing to them that we are going to strengthen and expand what they're already doing, we have a roadmap for doing that. And the United States is a good one to, in many regards, is a good one to follow, but it's also a lot of stuff to avoid. So with the the hospitals, I think it... it probably is pretty intuitive that right the incentive for them is that they're getting more patients and they're coming through but the fire departments and the volunteers sort of the folks at either end of the dispatch system what are some of the incentives that that you lay out for them that you kind of tap into to to help them use the system and are there other players involved with this too like with the the telecom companies and things like that 
Yeah. So this is, I mean, this was another, with emergency medical service in general, you know, you've cut across so many disciplines, so many public sectors and private sectors, the hospitals, the fire departments, the ambulance service, just like you're saying. The incentives for these responders are the same in many regards, the same incentives that we would see in the United States. Mm -hmm. If you want them to work full time running a lot of calls, you got to pay them. Right. But if they're going to be doing one call every three days, you know, I'm from Connecticut and there are a lot of departments in Connecticut that might run 13 calls in a month. Mm -hmm. Whereas when I was working in San Diego in Chula Vista, we were running 17 calls a day, you know, in a 24 hour shift. Yeah. And so you've got to pay me to work in Chula Vista. Not much, but (laughs) you got to pay me and you don't have to pay me to work in upstate Connecticut. So, so the incentives are the, the same thing for rural fire departments and rural agencies. It's the prestige, it's the access. Um, you know, it might be the uniform. Uh, it might be, um, what we do as well for some of the volunteers is uh, we cover the cost of their cell phones. Okay. Right? I, I volunteer for, for that. I got family line and that adds up with the additional note. But, but in all seriousness, there's some compensation for kind of being on call, right? Yes. So um, for those that really participate a lot, we'll cover their phone bills or we'll even give them a phone and, you know, take care of yeah. the monthly bill. Uh, in Tanzania, where we use motorcycle well i shouldn't say we but where motorcycle taxi drivers are the responders um one of the things that they asked for was health insurance it's like that makes a lot of sense right in peru uh the fire departments in peru are all volunteer and what they do is they say if you're a volunteer fire department we're not going to pay you if you're a volunteer firefighter we're not going to pay you but we'll give you and your family health insurance so you can imagine it's a pretty significant salary if that if it's anything like here in the state. Yeah, I mean that exactly. Right? So they get uh, government health care and and that hey, government health care is yeah. you know, especially in a lot of these countries, a civil service job is is really something sought after. Yeah. So it it sounds like too very similarly to the US as I know that EMS has always sort of struggled to um to sort of have career paths and kind of livable wages to really sort of professionalize the service outside of urban areas. It sounds like kind of similarly that, it you know, you really tap into the volunteer spirit and the civic spirit and kind of do as much as you can. You know, in terms of, we've talked a lot about the local institutions. And, you know, whenever we hear about international aid or international projects, we hear about ministries of health and the UN and the World Health Organization. And you haven't mentioned any of that yet. And I'm curious, is there, is it just because this is so hyper-local in its use or is there lack of attention at those or how do they kind of fit into the mix, if at all? So we have a funding right now from USAID and one of the questions that they wanted to know a lot about is what are the proof points for the government, right? What's it going to take the government to buy into this and to take it over? And we bent over backwards trying to come up with answers and um, we had a very hard time coming yeah. up with at least an answer that USAID would buy. Um, and I think what I believe is the reason is, is because um, the proof points don't happen 
without significant political pressure from either the local level or the international level. I have yet to see a government that has gone out on its own say, we need to build an emergency medical system. You know, like, this is our idea. Right. I found that when it happens, and I even asked some people at some of these agencies who, who have experience in emergency medical services, and I said, what do you think? And I, one of them explicitly said, oh, the only thing that's going to way to get them to do it is uh, with international pressure. Mm-hmm. And the, so here are examples. Right now, the countries that are actively trying to build EMS systems include Western Africa, like Sierra Leone, mm-hmm. Liberia, Ivory Coast. What do they have in common? Ebola. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? They have Ebola in common, and they have a lot of international pressure on them. During the Ebola breakout, what was the go-to donation in, in these countries? Ambulances. And, and the treatment units, obviously, to build the treatment units, but it was ambulances. Uh, you look at Haiti got a lot of pressure from the international community after the earthquake to build an EMS system because not only was there the earthquake, but there was also the cholera outbreak. And the cholera outbreak, I mean, when do people die from cholera? They die from cholera because they can't get to the hospital. So, so in these situations, is it the international community? Is it like a... How should I put this? Is it sort of like a, a, a sibling saying, hey, you know, we've recognized you have a need for this in your infrastructure, or is it a little bit more of a, we're tired of paying for this and this put us at risk? I mean, is it more self-serving? I wish that were the case. Okay. I wish. I wish the NGOs were like, you know, we send all of our people to these countries to help out and they have no medical care themselves. Yeah. You know, so we're going to you know, for our own good. I wish it were that self-serving. It's not. Um, the, the people I see who are, who are doing it, uh, who are going to build these systems from scratch or trying have incentives. I mean, they've got so many challenges. Think of the Ministry of Health of any country. They've got so many things on their plate. They've got so many challenges. Why does ambulance services all right. of a sudden jump to the top? Yeah. Um, so that pressure then that kind of comes internationally or internally is really, it, it's because that's where the spotlight was last shown. There's an acute need for it. Yeah. If you look at the Dominican Republic, who is doing a phenomenal job, uh, the government building out emergency medical services in their major metropolitan areas, where did the money for this come from? Yeah. It came from the United States. Why? Because the United States wants to crack down on drug traffic. Okay. So they get the United States says we want to help strengthen your police departments and your security, right? This came in through like security funding. Okay. And and so what they do is well, you know, we're doing nine one one for reporting emergencies in law enforcement. We gotta have ambulances too. And so they got eighty odd ambulances, but if you look that the ambulances were actually donated. Like they weren't in the budget themselves. They were like add on, you know kind of like cost sharing stuff and they were donated from the government of either Japan or Hong Kong. I can't remember. Um, one of those two, but it's the same thing. Like there's external, external countries notice a need and they say, you know, we're going to shine our spotlight on this. 
Yeah, so it sounds like then that there's a couple of different paradigms that could really lead to the the external pressure for doing this. You know, as you mentioned, with the Ebola outbreak in West Africa, with the earthquake in Haiti, and sort of this one, this this making it front and center, making the EMS front and center, being in a very reactionary format. Um, but also, as you mentioned, with these security issues and drug trafficking, and that there's a there's a national security interest of a nation to invest in the development of another. The, this is not at all abnormal. I mean, sure. When is the vast majority of funding that came to the United States for EMS services in the 1960s? When they, you know, the white paper, uh, uh, accidental yeah. death and disability, mm-hmm. and then the next major influx of funding after. Nixon and Ford left because Reagan came and was like, block grants, you know, no more government money for this stuff. Do what you want. Here's a block grant. The next major infusion of cash for emergency medical services in particular was Mm 9-11. Part of Homeland Security. Just flush with cash. But it's all for terrorism. It's not for right road traffic injuries or pregnant women or like you know, anything else, it's for terrorism. And so ambulances respond to terrorist attacks, police respond to terrorist attacks, so that's who gets the funding. And so, you know, it's that same kind of like, it's in the hot, like headlines, it's in the spotlight, that's where, you know, the squeaky wheel gets the grease. Yeah, you know, it's always, um, I, no, I always, no, 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 I always think of um, politics and the politics that drive a lot of decision is inherently emotional. And what is that emotional connection to it? Is it self-serving? Is it because you're seeing it in the spotlight? What is it that's elevating it? And then, as you mentioned, with the, the post-9-11 funding, is a lot of savvy agencies sort of found ways to meet the intent of the funding, but then also how do they broaden um, uh, broaden the work to make sure that it's not just about the rare terrorist attack, but that there's a baseline capacity. Uh, but let me ask too, so we talked a lot about external pressures on countries to develop systems. You mentioned that it could come internally as well too. So what does that look like when sort of internal pressure comes from a country to say, hey, we gotta, we gotta do this better or we gotta figure this out? Uh, the best one that comes to mind, again, is either the United States or from what I understand, South Africa. The common story in the United States is that after the Korean and more so the Vietnam War, mm-hmm. you had all of these combat medics coming home you know, and they were saying, uh, you have a better chance of surviving shrapnel in the middle of a Vietnamese jungle than you do a car wreck on Main Street. And so grassroots efforts, we're going to, you know, if the government's not going to do it, or we can do it ourselves, you know. So all these small communities start doing it, and they collectively push the government to to get behind this. Bubble up. South Africa was like that too, was... In the 70s or whatever, they got a law passed that said, you know, the, the provinces are in charge of ambulance services mm-hmm. and they're the ones who have to regulate it. And so in these in four different provinces where they had four major urban areas. So those four major urban centers started developing their own emergency medical services in their own way. And they basically went four different directions. Mm-hmm. And so they really started making ground in their provinces. But then what happened is that there was no reciprocity. They were using four different like standards. The problem we have today in the United States still. Yeah. And they were like, this is, this is awful. The, you know, the ambulance personnel, the paramedics were like, I get trained in Western Cape. I want to go to, I want to go to Eastern Cape and work. 
I gotta go through school again. This is ridiculous. Yeah. And so the federal, the the, the national government came along and said, "All right, this needs to be. We need to have this a way for them to register as ambulance personnel, and that they can have equal uniform standards, and that there's reciprocity." And they said to the provinces, "Get together," and, and they brought on like the the medical council board, you know, whoever was doing accreditation for doctors and dentists were like, all right, we're going to do it for you guys too now. And so that was again, like kind of from internally, like this is ridiculous. It's just, everybody's headed in different directions. So, so let me come to, um, uh, let me ask a not so simple question. Um, where is the world health organization in all of this? Great question. Okay. So originally they were not at all involved. Mm -hmm. And then starting in the late 90s or so, at least the early 2000s, what was called VIP, the Department of Violence and Injury Prevention, sure. got involved. Mm -hmm. And they were kind of the de facto EMS, we'll just talk about EMS, lead mm -hmm. because of injuries and road traffic injuries. And so for a long time, they were doing that, but it was kind of like, well, what do you do? Do you just set up an emergency medical system for trauma only? Of course right. not. And so it was actually not until a year or two ago. Well, so there were a couple things going on. There was the essential trauma care project, pre-hospital trauma care. And then they had like the essential emergency surgery, you know, for surgical care, essential emergency surgical care, something like that. And it wasn't, and they were all doing things, but they were very much like vertical programs, you know, focused on one specific condition or disease or group of conditions. And then in the past year or two, they opened up an emergency care department and, you know, the division of emergency care. And they are moving forward. Um, what they're tasked with, though, is they're looking at emergency care, you know, both pre-hospital and clinical. Right. And, and, that re and when you talk about clinical emergency care, you're talking about medicine. Right. We're talking about treatment, right? So that necessarily invites all the doctors and physicians to be in charge, mm -hmm. as it should be for clinical emergency care. But for pre-hospital emergency care, in countries like Europe and the United States and Australia and Canada, yes, we too want to be talking about emergency medicine in the pre-hospital setting. But in a lot of developing countries and uh, low and middle income countries where they don't have, where emergency care isn't even recognized as a specialty, mm -hmm. the focus on providing medical guidelines only gets you so far. And so they have been involved in talking about communications and transportation. Um, the African Federation for Emergency Medicine has released two statement papers on defining emergency medical systems in African countries and also communications, interestingly. And so it's happening, but it is very much physician-led. And, and a big reason for that, I think, is also because who are the ones that are publishing research? Because right. if you go to a World Health Organization, they want one thing. We want the data. Right. Show us the evidence. There aren't a lot of EMTs and even paramedics out there publishing data. And if they are, 
it's with the help of physicians. So it tends to become more clinical-oriented and less systems-oriented in terms of the nuts and bolts of a pre-hospital transport system of an EMS system. Yes, so Trapmedics, I like to say that when you're talking about emergency medical systems in low- and middle-income countries that have no comprehensive services, the medical is incidental. They should be like, we should be calling them emergency logistics systems, you know, like emergency transport systems. You know, one of the things that um, really interested me all along with Trekmatics and the work that uh, that you're doing is this sort of look at, at, forget about sort of the dogma of what is the right way to do it or what's the way that's always been done, but what is quantitatively going to save the most lives. And um, I want to mention this. You have this picture. I think it's still on the website. I'm not sure, but it's a picture you had. And, and you give this presentation. Uh, you'll remember it when I say it. Is the, um, because you would give this whole setup on how this, like, I'm about to show you one of the most productive ambulances in the world. Right? And you remember this? And it was like, it saves more lives than any ambulance in New York City. And you'd say it saves X number of lives per year. Um, and, um, and then you'd show the picture, and it's a donkey pulling a wooden cart with a spray-painted red cross on it. And I think it was in Zimbabwe, and the sole purpose of that ambulance, and I'm using air quotes here, was to bring women to their prenatal appointments when they were pregnant and to make sure that they got the prenatal care that they need. And it was the unsexiest ambulance you'll ever see in your life. Didn't run on fuel, didn't have any radio communication. It was literally a donkey pulling the cart but that it moved women to get the care that they needed before their children were were born, saved, you know, how many, how many children as a result of having the proper checkups and having the the proper interventions. And I think that that's, um, like I said, there's so many beliefs that sort of influence the politics around EMS domestically and internationally that it's, it's helpful to sometimes step back and sort of test those assumptions. And I appreciate you, you sharing your perspective here. And how can folks track what's going on with Trackmedics? How can people follow what you're doing? And where can they go for more information? Yeah, great question. So um, we have our website, Trekmedics, T-R-E-K-M-E-D-I-C-S dot O-R-G. Uh, and... People can come check out our website, read about our active programs in the Dominican Republic and Tanzania, and also check out our database for emergency medical systems in other countries. Uh, not at all comprehensive globally, but we have about 30 countries up there with a good amount of data, some more than others, and always building them. Uh, so definitely check that out. But um, what we're doing right now as an organization is we are thank you thanks to Twilio. Uh, Twilio is an internet company out in San Francisco that uh, basically handles text messages for lots and lots of companies. So oftentimes when you get a push notification, it's actually Twilio that's sending it to you. Um, and we use them to handle all of our text messages for emergency responders in the Dominican Republic. And also we've done a lot of uh, testing and other stuff here in the United States with them. But they gave us a very generous grant in their impact fund, Twilio.org. Um, and we are building a smartphone version of our software. When we first started building Beacon, it was for, uh, we built it for as many people to use as possible. 
And so in a lot of these countries, they didn't have smartphones at the time. It's like the Nokia or the flip phone. Or that. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So text SMS, that's what we were doing. But now caught up very quickly and have even surpassed us in terms of our expectations for smartphone penetration. So now we're doing a smartphone app version for both iOS and Android. And that should be, uh, we're aiming to release that by the end of September. So when we do that, it'll be really exciting because anybody who wants to see it and see how it works will be able to download it, check it out. But in order to make it live, you gotta have the fire chief or you know the ambulance service director call us up and set up a data center. Um, so we're excited to see how that happens. And at the same time, uh, we've gotten such a great uh, we've gotten such great feedback from people about our software, saying, "Hey, look, this is a problem in the United States too. It's not just in the developing countries that we're actually preparing to launch a." Uh, a company here to serve these needs in the United States and actually a lot of other needs as well beyond just ambulance services and that company is called Kyoti Technologies. Kyoti as in Don Kyoti and so uh, we've got a crack team of developers working on an updated version for EMS services in the United States and wealthier countries with more advanced air quote advanced systems um, so that's going to be happening this fall as well. So definitely check out our website and we'll keep you posted. All right. Well, thanks so much for joining us and thanks for you know doing what you're doing both domestically and abroad. And, uh, and we'll definitely keep in touch and hopefully have you back as these new systems come out and uh, just appreciate uh, all your insights. Thank you. Love the show and, and look forward to hearing more. And that does it for episode four of Disaster Politics Podcast. Thanks to Jason and Daniel for all your work that you're doing and for the insights you shared with us today. If you like the international flavor we brought to this episode, stay tuned for the next one. We're going to do the whole thing talking about the international response systems. It's really going to be a great one. In the meantime, if you like this podcast, give us a five-star rating on iTunes or wherever you download fine podcasts. Send us an email. You want to talk to us. We're at disasterpoliticspodcast at gmail.com. And of course, keep the conversation going on Twitter. We're at disasterpolitics. As always, thanks for listening and stay safe out there.